I didn't notice it till this week, but uh, half of the people in that video were having twins. Did you catch that? The guy that put that together had twins this last week. I think he was telling us something. Um, we are in a series called Revealed, and what we're doing is we're looking at um, Old Testament texts that are kind of off the beaten path, but they tell us who Jesus is. They reveal to us who He is. And so, we started by uh, saying that the, Jesus is the Messiah who is revealed to come in the Old Testament, um, that we moved on and Jesus is revealed to be the once-for-all atonement for sin uh, from passages in the Old Testament. Then we talked about the fact that Jesus alone pers- perfectly fulfills prophecy that is written about in Old Testament Scriptures. We talked about that Jesus is the new King David. That's who He's revealed to be. He's the new Moses. That's who we talked about last week. That's where Jesus is revealed to be. And today, uh, I'm just going to jump right in, and we need to look at three things. I want to look at a promise, I want to look at a parable, and then I want to look at a path. And the letter P is just so useful. Um, whenever, whenever I need to alliterate things, P just always seems to jump out. I don't know what it is about that letter, but there you go. So, you're all puking right now, but okay. Uh, first, a promise. Uh, Psalm 118 is where we're headed, and uh, we just have two weeks in our Core 52 uh, book, our Journey Left, just two weeks, and they're both kind of center around the same topic. And this week's core verse comes from Psalm 118, verse 22. It goes this way, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And what we're wading to, into, the territory that we're walking into right away, is the territory of masonry. Now, I've just had enough masonry experience to be dangerous. There was a, a foundation wall that I needed done a few years ago, and so I hired a mason in town. He was really, he knew what he was doing, and I hired him, and I said, hey, would you come do this, but would you let me help? Because I want to learn how to do things. And so he did, and, and I worked alongside him. And the, the amazing thing about that whole experience was that we spent a good part of the project on the very first stone. It took us forever to lay that very first stone. But then, once we got that first stone in place, everything else kind of went really fast. And that very first stone is called the cornerstone. Uh, sometimes it's called a, a foundation stone or a setting stone, but it's the first block that you put in place for a structure, and then all of the rest of the blocks or bricks are laid in reference to it. And so, as you can guess, it is crazy important that you get the cornerstone correct. If you get it out of whack, unlevel or not straight, then everything else in the rest of the structure is compromised in ever-increasing degrees. But if you get the cornerstone right, then the rest of your wall is right as well. And so, I'm glad to report we got my foundation straight and true because this guy knew what he was doing and he set the cornerstone exactly right. Get the cornerstone right and all the other parts of the building will be right. And so, you can see how that's a useful picture that then the Old Testament writers pick up and they begin to talk about this principle that the cornerstone becomes then a symbol for the thing that holds the rest of your life together. 
If you get your cornerstone right, in, in other words, if you put the right thing in the right place in your life, then the whole rest of your life will follow suit and will be right. Now, how many of you are like me and you need some cornerstone work today? I need to get that in the right place so that the rest of my life falls in line. And so, we come to this cornerstone language in Psalm 118, and that text was a was not foreign to the Jewish authorities and the, and the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. They, they wrote about it in what was called the Targum. The Targum was actually separate from the Old Testament text. The Targum was kind of a paraphrase of the Old Testament text. That's the way we would, we would say it. So, we have, you know, the ESV, maybe you listen, you read from, or the NIV, and then we have a paraphrase called the message. And the Targum would be like the message of the, Isra the ancient Israelite day. And so, when you read in the Targum, the interesting thing is that when you come to this verse, the Targum paraphrases this in a way that is very helpful. Here's what the Targum says. It doesn't say the stone that the builders rejected. It says, what is it? The boy that the builders rejected. He was among the sons of Jesse, and he was privileged to be appointed as king and ruler. What does that tell us? Uh, did you notice what's different? First, the, there's no stone. There's suddenly a son, and there's a good reason to change the stone to son. It's because the two words in Hebrew are almost identical. Son is ben. That's the word, that Hebrew word. But stone is eben. And so, just by changing the beginning of the word, we turn the boy into a stone. And here's why this matters. The Targum is making a play on words that help us to interpret the verse. And it does this before Jesus ever comes on the scene. That's why it's important. When we read boy for stone, what we understand is that God's foundation stone turns out not to be a piece of granite. It's not a literal rock. It's a person. And that makes sense because God's kingdom is always built on people. It's not built on uh, property. It's not buildings that He's interested in. It's hearts. And then also, did you notice whose son the boy was? He's the son of Jesse. He walks among the sons of Jesse. Who's Jesse? If you go back to the Old Testament, if you uh, read some s significant stories about King David, you find out that his father's name was Jesse. And we talked about a few weeks ago that the Messiah was to come from the line of King David. And so, here it is in Psalm 118. This is a clear reference to the, to the Davidic line that the Messiah will come from, and this prophecy then is clearly about the Messiah and what will happen to Him when He comes. And what is that? Here's what the text says. The stone, the builders, what's the word? Rejected. He will be rejected. The Messiah to come will be rejected. Before Jesus ever came on the scene, the Jewish people recognized this promise from God that the Messiah, when He came in His day, would be rejected. He would be like a stone that wasn't useful to the builders, all of a sudden becoming the most important stone in the whole structure. He would be rejected, but then God would use that rejection and turn it on its head to establish His Son, His Messiah, 
as the very most important role in the nation. And so that rejected stone would become a cornerstone. And the text says, God will do this, it's a promise, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's the promise of Psalm 118. Now, there's the promise. We need to fast forward to the life of Jesus. Uh, actually, to the last week of the life of Jesus. He's just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's gone in and cleansed the temple, and the very next day, he goes back to that temple that's now clean, and he begins to teach people. And if you are one of the religious authorities, and you were around the day before, and where Jesus came in and just, you know, cleared everything out, you're probably not too happy. So, to see him pop back up again the next day in the corner of the temple to teach people, you're not going to take that very well. And sure enough, there are authorities that go to Jesus as he is teaching. They start interrogating him. Why are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things? And so, Jesus turns his attention to these religious leaders He asks them a question, he tells them a parable, and then he tells them a second parable. And it's that second parable that we just read in its entirety, and that's what we're going to focus on. Uh, And it's super important. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three include this parable in their Gospels. And so, it is central to us uh, for helping us understand who Scripture reveals Jesus to be. And so, the story is this. It involves a landowner who plants a vineyard. And right away, very importantly, we need to understand that anytime in the Old Testament when a vineyard is talked about, the vast majority of those times, it's referring to the nation of Israel. A vineyard is metaphorical language for the people of God, for the people of Israel. And so, whenever the text in the Old Testament says God was planting a vineyard or He's caring for the vineyard, usually what that means is He's planting His people. He's caring for His people. He's molding. He's shaping them into the nation He wants them to be that will then save the world. And that's surely what's going on here with Jesus. The vineyard that Jesus is referring to is the nation of Israel, and that makes God the landowner himself. And so, from there, the basic plot is pretty simple. A rich man comes, and he invests in a vineyard. He wants a business, and so he chooses a vineyard as his business, and he hires some people to help him run the business. Some tenants is what Jesus says that they are, and they'll keep the vineyard. They'll make it profitable, and so he goes away, and he lets them work. And when harvest time comes, when when the money should be rolling in, he sends a servant to get some of the profit that he's entitled to. It's not that the tenants didn't get paid. They were getting paid their fair share. But the, uh, the enterprise is the, the landowner's. It's his business. And so, he's deserving of whatever the vineyard produces above the labor costs, right? And so, that's what he's after. So, uh, he sends a servant to collect that. But the tenants don't want to give him the profit. They decide that they are going to start acting like owners instead of the tenants that they are, instead of the hired hands that they are. And they refuse to pay the landowner his due, and so the landowner sends another servant. And they do the same thing with that servant. Each servant that he sends, they promptly beat up and they kill. And finally, the master decides, okay, I'll send my son. 
Surely they will respect my son. And so he sends his son, and these wicked tenants don't respect the son either. They end up assassinating the son, and their reasoning is that if we get the son out of the picture, then maybe the business, the vineyard can be ours alone. And again, they're acting like owners, not tenants. And let's press pause right there and just ask this question. Do you ever do that? Here are people who are hired to tend the vineyard for the master. That means that they're to tend the garden by his word and for his profit. And I want you to think about that for a little bit because that means that if the master says by his word means if what he says goes. If he says, I want you to plant a row of vines north-south, then the tenants don't have any room to arbitrarily decide that they want to plant that row east-west. It's by his word that they are to run the business. And it's also for his profit that they are to run the business. It means that although they get a fair wage for their work, it's the master who has invested the most. It's his business, and he alone is entitled to all of the earnings above all of the costs. And so, we get that when it comes to business. I mean, we wouldn't expect anything different from any business owner here in town, but when it comes to God, oh, we're not so sure. You have a physical life, you have an emotional life, you have a social life, you have gifts, you have talents, you have creativity, maybe because of the circumstances uh, that you are in, uh, the, the situation that the owner placed you in, the vineyard that he gave you, you have a certain amount of wealth or a certain amount of power or privilege. Each of us has, given all, has been given all sorts of things, and the crucial thing that we must see is that we are tenants. That's what we are. You are not the owner of your life. You're just a tenant. That's one of the things that we can pull out of this parable that Jesus tells. And things get all jacked up when people who are supposed to be tenants start acting like owners. And that's what we do all the time. You or I, we get possessions, we get power, we get privilege, we get money, and then we go about deciding how we are going to use those things as if we are the reason that we have them. And that's a very normal path to take because our world gives you that path all the time. Our world would stare at you cross-eyed if you suggested that you were not, in fact, in charge of your own money or your own sexuality, or your own morality. Our world says, you alone determine your values and set your agenda. They say there's no reason whatsoever for you not to act like an owner because that's what you are. You are in charge of your life. That's the message that we get 24-7. And I just want to point out that Jesus is saying that the opposite is absolutely the reality. Christianity is on so many levels like swimming upstream against the current. And here's another example of it. Jesus says, you don't own your life, you're just a tenant, but we act like owners all the time. We're given a mind, 
And we act like an owner when we say, you know what, I'm going to decide what's true for me. We're acting like an owner. We're given a sexuality. And we act like an owner when we say, I can do whatever I want with my body. I get to decide. The owner gives us money or possessions. And when we decide and determine what to do with those resources, independent of any input of the owner, guess what we're doing? We are putting ourselves in place of the owner. We're acting like the owner when we're not. Jesus says, you're, te- you're the tenant. You are to use what He's given you according to His directions, by His Word, and according to His desires for His profit. That's what God wants of you. And here's the challenge for all of us. There's this constant struggle. On one hand, our hearts know instinctively that we're just tenants. We, we don't own anything. We weren't given any. We, weren't, we didn't make anything for ourselves. We were given everything. We know that. But our hearts also desperately want to be owners. We want to say. We want to be in control. And so, at every turn, there's a battle. Will I keep pretending that I'm the owner or will I let God be in charge and be the owner that He truly is. If I keep pretending that I'm an owner for long enough, I end up killing the Son of God. And that's what happens in the story. It's one of those ruthless kind of tales, you hear it, and you just can't believe that people act this way. The religious authorities who were listening to the story thought, that exact same thing. At the end of the story, Jesus asks them a question. He says, when the owner of the vineyard comes back, what do you think he will do to the tenants who assassinated his son? And the religious leaders answer exactly as you think they would answer. They had fire in their eyes as they answered. He'll string them up. That'll be the end of them. And you can see them pounding their fist into the air as they said it. And not only that, these religious leaders have the uh, insight to say, you know what he's going to do? He's not only going to end them, he'll go out and he'll find some other people to come in and run his vineyard who will give him the profits. Some parables take work and thought to understand, but this one is really clear. The the landowner is God. The vineyard is the nation of Israel, and we've kind of already said that. The servants who the landowner sent and who were killed were the prophets in the Old Testament that God sent to the the nation of Israel, to the vineyard, to, to preach to them, and they constantly rejected those prophets. The assassinated son in the parable is Jesus Himself. And the tenants, who are they? The tenants, there's little doubt that the tenants are the very religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. And so, Jesus is the landowner's son who is about to be killed. The religious leaders in front of Him are the tenants who are about to kill the son. And do you see what Jesus is doing in this parable? He is publicly exposing the plot that is currently underway of the Jewish leaders to murder him. Oh my goodness, that's gutsy. And they fall right into the trap. 
Jesus kind of uses their own words against them. He gives them just enough rope to hang themselves. That's what's going on here. And then he pulls the final blow with Psalm 118. He says, wow, you guys seem furious. And you should be. You should be furious at a story like that. But guess what? By the way, have you ever read the Scripture where it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And he points them to this famous verse. Now, remind me, what did we decide just a few minutes ago that this very verse promised? That the coming Messiah would be rejected. There wasn't a religious leader that was listening to this story that did not know that. There's not a person listening to Jesus who did not know Psalm 118 verse 22 and did not know that the Messiah was supposed to be rejected in His day. And so, do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, and here they are, the authorities, rejecting Him right on cue. And if you're one of the chief priests, this parable is a kick in the teeth because you are at this very moment plotting to kill Jesus. And here's what Jesus did, just did. Number one, He exposed your plot to kill Him. He exposed the fact that He knows about your plot to kill Him. Number two, He's just argued from Scripture that your plot to kill Him is proof that He's the Messiah. You are planning His death to prove that He's not the Messiah. And Jesus said, if you kill Him, it's further proof that I am the Messiah. And three, He just prophesied exactly what Psalm 118 does. If you kill me, God will use my execution as a way to save the nation of Israel. And so, logically, this is game, set, match to Jesus. He takes their attempt to discredit Him, and He turns it into evidence in His favor. And as you can imagine, the religious leaders are not too impressed with this. They want to kill Him all the more, and you can see Jesus in the back of His head saying, exactly, this is exactly what has to happen. The killing that comes from the enmity is the very thing that God uses to kill the enmity to save us all. That's the way Paul puts it in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2. And that line is worthy of your meditation this whole week. The killing that comes from the enmity is the very thing that God uses to kill the enmity to save us all. And so, here's where we land. The promise is that the Messiah will be rejected. The parable is that Jesus is that Messiah who is currently being rejected. And in those two things, what we see is a path. There's a path. There's this universal biblical principle here that we have to know if we're ever going to understand the way of God and the way of Jesus. And here is the principle. Rejection is the way to salvation. We could say it in a lot of different ways. Mark Moore will say it this week, humiliation leads to exaltation. We could say denigration is necessary for acclamation. We could say suffering is the way to victory. Jesus will say it this way, if you want to win in life, you need to lose. He will tell His disciples, do you want to be first? Then you have to be last. 
However you want to phrase it, it's the same principle, this path that God uses over and over and over that He's built into the fabric of the universe is this, that the, it's the humble, it's the lowly, it's the repentant that are then glorified, that are then lifted up, then exalted. And obviously, we see that path in the cross that Jesus is headed to. Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. There's the path. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like Psalm 118? Absolutely. The the son, the stone that was rejected, he was nailed to a cross. But God made that rejected, rejected son into a cornerstone. And so now, every person needs to set their life in line with that cornerstone, and your life will now be acceptable in God's eyes. No one will be able to see God without that cornerstone, Jesus, set in place in their life. And so, Jesus becomes the most important person to everyone who has ever lived. And this principle is on full display at the cross that Jesus is rejected and glorified because of it. But it's also Christmas. And if we go to the very beginning of the story, we also see the path. We see it in the manger. Jesus, the creator of the universe, is born into a world, into a humble, in a humble town to, to poor peasant parents. He's laid in a feeding trough for animals. It was predicted by Isaiah that it would happen this way. The Lord Himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And that's a super famous prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7. We use it on Christmas cards. But if you look closely at it, the special sign that would happen is that this virgin mother will call His name Emmanuel. That's the sign. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. And there's the path. The glory that God had, He left it behind. The God of glory humbled Himself, left His rightful place in heaven, lowering Himself to the humiliation of human flesh. He shrouded divinity in humanity. We sing uh, this line every Christmas, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God chose this, God with us. The Lord of heaven chose to become a helpless infant. Why? (laughs) Because rejection is the path to salvation. Making yourself low is the preferred path of God. Loving others above yourself is the supreme ethic of God. And at the manger, Jesus loses Himself to come and find us. And then later at the cross, Jesus loses Himself again in order to save us. Rejection, humiliation, suffering, it always leads to salvation, exaltation, and glorification. That's God's path. And it's always the path. And if it's the path, then we know where to walk. If the gender reveal says it's a boy, we know what to do. If it's a girl, we know what to do. We know how to paint the walls. We know what clothes to buy. And if we know that it takes rejection for Jesus to save us, then we also know the path in life that we have to now walk. 
We know what it looks like, and it's unlike any other path that the world offers us. It looks like, it looks like a tenant working for a master, doing His will for His profit, just as Jesus was a tenant Himself working for the will of God and for the profit of God. While he was working as a journalist uh, for the Chicago Tribune, Lee Strobel was assigned to report um, on the struggles of an impoverished family in the inner city of Chicago during Christmas time. And he was, uh, Strobel was a devout atheist at the time, didn't believe at all. And he went to this family that he was going to cover in this article, and he was really surprised uh, by the attitude this family seemed to have in spite of their circumstances. He walked into uh, an apartment, a tiny two-bedroom apartment, and he met the Delgados. Uh, the Delgados consisted of a 60-year-old grandmother. Her name was Perfecta, and her two granddaughters, Lydia and Jenny. And they had been burned out of their prior uh, living residence. Uh, now they were living in this tiny place on the west side of Chicago. And as Strobel walked in, he couldn't believe how empty it was. There were no furniture. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, rugs, no appliances, nothing on the walls. Only a small kitchen table. There's one chair, a handful of rice on top of the table. And that's it. They, they literally did not have anything to claim as their own. Their plight was so desperate that... 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny only owned one short-sleeve dress each, plus a thin gray sweater between the two of them. And so, as they walked to school in the cold, one of them would wear the sweater halfway. At the halfway point, she would take it off, give it to the other one, and they would walk the rest of the way to school. Strobel learned that there were legitimate medical reasons that kept Perfecta from working, but he also learned that at every turn, she talked confidently about her faith in Jesus. She was convinced that Jesus had not abandoned them, and in his article that he wrote after this, Strobel said, I never sensed despair or self-pity in her home. Instead, there was this gentle feeling of hope and peace." And so, Strobel went back, he completed his, ar his article, he moved on to some more high-profile assignments, but that Christmas season, he kept finding his thoughts drift back to the Delgados and their rock-solid belief that God would take care of them, and he wrestled with the irony that, that he, here was a fam family who had nothing in the world, but they had a strong faith, and, and they seemed happy while he was a journalist who had everything he needed materially, but inside he felt as empty as their apartment was. And so, in the middle of a time that was pretty slow, is getting really close to Christmas, he decided to go back and visit the Delgados. And when he arrived, he was amazed at what he saw. He walked through the door and come to find out that readers of his article had responded to the family's need with, in an overwhelming fashion. They had filled this small apartment with everything that it lacked. There was new furniture, there were new appliances, rugs, there was a large Christmas tree in the corner. It was stacked with wrapped presents. There were bags of food. There, were, there was a large selection of warm winter clothing. Readers had even donated large amounts of cash 
to the Delgados. And all of that was shocking, but what shook Strobel to his atheist core was that as he entered into that little tiny place, he understood what he was interrupting. Perfecta and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. And Strobel asked, why would you do this? And Perfecta said, our neighbors are still in need. They don't have much, and we can't have plenty while they have nothing. That's what Jesus would want us to do. And Strobel said, that blew me away. If I had been in their position at the time, I, I would have been hoarding everything. And he asked Perfecta what she thought about all the generosity of the people who had sent all these things. And her response, again, amazed him. This is wonderful. It's very good. She pointed to the largest present. She said, we did nothing to deserve this. It's a gift from God. But then she said, it's not the greatest gift. The greatest gift comes tomorrow on Christmas. The greatest gift is Jesus. And to her... This child in the manger was the undeserved gift that meant everything, more than material possessions, more than comfort, more than security. And in that moment, something inside of Strobel wanted desperately to know Jesus. He writes about this because, in a sense, he saw in Perfecta and granddaughter, her granddaughters Jesus himself. His article would end this way, they had peace despite poverty while I had anxiety despite plenty. They knew of the joy of generosity, while I only knew the loneliness of ambition. They looked heavenward for hope, while I only looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the spiritual, while I was shackled to the shallowness of the material. And something made me long for what they had, or more accurately, who they knew. What draws an upscale atheist reporter to the person of Jesus? What pricks his heart more than anything else? It was that he saw the path. Here are people rejected, humiliated, denigrated with nothing, and then suddenly their lot in life changes, and their chief aim is to put others first? Who does that? Their chief aim is to serve just because the landowner told them to? Who does that? Only tenants do that, not owners. What Strobel saw, and undoubtedly it was influential in his own conversion to Christ, what Strobel saw was the path lived out in front of him. And because of that, he was able to embrace it himself. Some of you have benefited from the writings of Lee Strobel. He went on to become a Christian, and this was probably a pivotal event for him. And he became a a powerful Christian apologist. He has argued for the Christian faith in ways that nobody else has. And the reason that you have benefited from Lee Strobel and I have benefited from his thought is because here's an elderly grandmother and her granddaughters with nothing in this world who chose to bend low and even in their poverty put other people first because that's the path. And when people see it, they can't get to Jesus fast enough. 
I'm going to ask you to uh, take your communion elements, and we're going to wind into a time of communion. And as we come around the table today, it's right to be reminded of the way Jesus was rejected, that He was willingly mocked, beaten, ridiculed, not to mention crucified by men for us. And when He was on the cross, what did He say? One of the things He said on the cross, if you'll recall, Father, why have You forsaken Me? What is that? That's rejection. Jesus endured the rejection, not just of men, but of the Father Himself, of God Himself, and He did that so that you and I could be loved by God. When we were the rejected ones, when we were lost in our sin, God asked Jesus to take our place, to become the stone that was rejected for our sake. God made him to be sin who knew, who knew no sin, that in him, by his rejection, we might be the righteousness of God. And Jesus took that path willingly, the path of a tenant, the path that says, thy will be done. As you take your emblems here after I pray, would you just think about that path? Thank God, thank Jesus that he chose to be rejected for you so that you could be accepted by God. Father, we praise you for exalting the rejected Jesus and making him the cornerstone of all life. May we set the gospel in place in our hearts like a stone that is set perfectly in place so that all the other parts of our lives are straight and true and solid and secure. We thank you and we rejoice that we've been built into your family because of Jesus. And it's in the name of Jesus, our cornerstone, our eternal rock, that we pray. Amen.